When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lure, your host, and so happy to be with you for the last episode of 2017. It has been a, a wonderful year in terms of basketball, and I wanted to end it with a team that I've been absolutely fascinated by this entire year, and also a guest that I've had on numerous times and really enjoy, and that's Jared Weiss. Uh, Jared Weiss, he focuses primarily on the Celtics. He's the editor of Celtics Wire, which uh, USA Today does, and he also works for CLNS Media. And Boston has been such a large figure in this, in this, despite you know getting knocked out of the playoffs early because they were huge in the off season. The big draft, you know, pre-draft trade, moving from one to three, signing Gordon Hayward, acquiring Kyrie Irving, and then how the season has gone, losing Gordon Hayward in the first few minutes of the season in the first game of the entire year for any NBA team. And then everything that's happened since then, the big win streak and falling off a little bit since, and the development of the young players. So Jared and I had a lot to talk about. And we go into the Celtics in a lot of detail. That's about 50 minutes of the show. And then we talk about the broader NBA, some trends that we've been seeing, what we're looking forward to in 2018 and and as we move forward. And it's a very exciting time, as many of you know, to be an NBA fan and to watch the NBA. This episode is brought to you by Action Heat, which is heat, heated clothing using rechargeable batteries. It's an amazing concept I didn't even know existed until Action Heat. And you can go to action-heat.com slash realgm or use the realgm coupon code for 15% off your entire order. So it's a great way to check it out. And this episode runs, I think it's like an hour 15, lots of different topics, lots of substance. If there's a Celtics related thing that you're thinking about, we probably touch on it and lots of substance. Love talking with Jared. So I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Always fun to be here. This has been a fascinating season for the Celtics because they were on the short list for my most anticipated teams to watch this year. That changed a minute and a half into the season when Gordon Hayward went down and then they, they worked their way back there pretty quickly when they went on that big win streak. And then now they've kind of been settling in a little bit. So it seemed like a good time to kind of touch base with thinking more in the macro sense than the micro. Where is this season relative to what you expected and what do you think are the, the big takeaways so far? I think the big takeaways is that the law of averages plays out at the end because the schedule is that constant factor. So while the schedule certainly allowed for them to go on that insane run that they started off and they obviously outperformed whatever the schedule is allotting there, the schedule reeled them back in with this uh, incredibly condensed schedule. They're basically in a constant state playing three games and four nights for almost the entire month of December. Uh, as Kyrie Irving said the other night that they're just looking to London. They're just trying to make it to London where they play the Sixers on January 11th and they have the whole week off aside from that. So it's like they get their own little all-star break basically in the middle of the season. So I think the big thing for them is that get, like they're getting pretty banged up and Stevens is starting to call on some of the guys at the back of the rotation and they're coming through not every single time, but enough that 
they're proving that their depth is still there, which seemed like it might be a bit of a question when they started losing. So I think things are kind of starting to settle in for them now. That Rockets win was pretty insane. I wouldn't even say it's really indicative. Actually, I would say that's kind of that was kind of the opposite of how they've played so far. Like the bench basically brought them back into the game with its offense, which has been the opposite of their strength so far. Marcus Smart, just Marcus Smart did that one essentially. But they've been everyone on the team has been kind of up and down except for basically the core starters who have been really consistent. But they have enough good talent on the roster that they always have usually enough guys that are playing well that night to put it together. Right. They've been in this in this spot where they've needed somebody to step up a lot and somebody usually has. And that doesn't always continue. And, you know, of course, that's you know, that was a big element in their massive win streak and then and what happened afterwards. But that is the hallmark of a deep team and also of a coach that trusts his players, which Stevens clearly does. I mean, I think back to I think it was their second game of the year when they were playing the Bucks and Ojale got serious minutes in that game. Abdul Nader played in that game. And Stevens has the benefit. It's, it, there is a parallel here with Steve Kerr of trusting guys, but also having guys that are actually worth trusting as opposed to, let's say, like the Houston deep bench guys would, who are not NBA players, at least at this point. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, so most of Boston's back of the bench guys aren't NBA players yet either. They're all rookies. So, you know, although the funny thing is a lot of it's unique in that. So Abdel Nader and... Gershon Abusele are rookies, but they were playing in the, they were playing for their main red claws last year where they're running pretty much the same system. In fact, their coach, uh, Scott Morrison last year is now an assistant on the bench with the Boston Celtics. So that continuity, I think helps. And Nader is starting to get some minutes now, starting to get his footing under him. Uh, Yabusele is in the same position, but I mean, Boston has. They've been without Marcus Morris for the most part, who is going to play a huge role with their second unit as we started to see in that Houston game where he really turned it around for them. Um, but they have really good bench players at the top, at least of the bench with Marcus Smart, with Terry Rogier, now with Morris, obviously. And they can have their like good eight man rotation. And then they have enough diversity of those options at the end of the bench, all of whom are competent enough to get in there when they need to, that they can pick and choose which guy is the right guy to use uh, on a game by game basis. So Shane Larkin lately has been getting the call and he's an, you know, he's an NBA vet who, you know, last year I think figured out how to be a role player while he was overseas and figured out the role of it. And he's been working pretty hard on defense this year and he's really undersized, but he made a defensive impact in probably like the last five wins or so that they've had, especially in the second half. And, they're relying on their bench to bring defensive intensity when it's waning from the starters who have been carrying a lot of load and a lot of minutes and all these back-to-backs. And Stevens has been really good at figuring out which guys are going to bring defensive energy each night off the bench. And it's probably the one constant that they've had throughout this insane December stretch. They've been able to find somebody to come through for them and just be a defensive playmaker. And that gets them back in the games, even when they're trailing. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. And something else that Stevens deserves credit for, and I think it's going to become a bigger thing around the league, though it will always be less than some people want, is the idea of adjusting your starting lineup and adjusting rotations, not only on who's playing well, but based on who you're playing against. And I did think it was a little bit weird that Baines started in the game on Thursday against the Rockets just because Houston runs so much high pick and roll. And there's there's some limitations there. But by and large, the approach of we're going to need to play these guys in a lot of different combinations. And while basketball players, just like all other athletes, are creatures of habit, they need to be ready in certain circumstances to get a little bit of a different role based on who makes sense against this opponent. 
I think Marcus Morris would have started that Houston game if he was healthy enough, but he just isn't healthy enough right now. And actually, I asked Stevens about Morris after the game, and he said that at this point, because Morris is basically playing every other game, depending on whether they have two days of rest in between, which they do at the moment, actually. But they just want one stint in each half where Morris just runs himself out of energy. He was kind of talking about Morris like he was a golden retriever, which I thought was funny and probably accurate. Um, that sounds but, about right. Yeah, so – and it worked. It worked so well because Morris in the third quarter when he – Daily, he almost punched an official, by the way. He was, like, air-punching an official, like, three feet away from him. And he channeled that anger into relentless offensive energy, and it worked, and it got them back in the game. But Boston is – Stevens is doing a good job, I think, of uh, staggering guys playing with emotional energy to try to keep that energy level consistent because that's probably the hardest part, really, when you're going through – these tough schedule stretches is just keeping that energy up there and trying to stay in transition, which is how they want to play, especially with the second unit since they don't have as many playmakers. So that's probably why Baines was starting, not and not just because Morris was not ready to start, and because Jalen Brown was out, which also means that they are a little they, they have a little less versatility defensively. So it, it makes sense in that isolated instance. Before Morris was consistently hurt, they were pretty, they were switching it up based on matchup a lot more frequently. And I think once Morris becomes healthier, they're going to start doing that again. But I think Morris is a much better fit in the second unit than he is in the first unit because of the way that he plays offensively is much more needed to pick up the second unit's offense, especially in half court and kind of seems to be a bit of a wrench in the system for the first unit. Unsurprisingly, it is an exact parallel with his identical twin brother, who (laughs) the problem with the Morris twins as starters is that they think of themselves as larger cogs in the machine than they are. And so that works with the second unit because the players around them are less capable of creating shots for themselves and others. But let's say with Markeith in in Washington, he's taking shots away in the starting lineup from John Wall, Brad Beal and Otto Porter and to a, a certain extent, Marcin Gorsat. But on the second unit, you know, they've had some guys come and go, but even though that unit has played better, I think that he's a natural fit. And the the same thing is true with Marcus, where there are elements of them, and you could say in certain circumstances that they're starting caliber players. It's just that they're starting caliber players who who their game is better suited to not start. It's it's kind of a catch-22 here. So their ego forces them to want to be in the starting lineup, but it's also what makes them so great. And... That's the you know that's the balance that the coach has to play to try to make these guys effective. But the Morrises are very much old school '90s style stretch fours, I guess, and their isolation skill and their relentlessness on offense can be really, really valuable. But I don't like them starting because it just if if you're especially Boston, who I think has developed a really good motion system. And everybody's swinging the ball very nicely. Everybody's a spot-up shooter. Morris, when he gets the ball, it stops there a lot of the time. And he can make some good stuff happen with it. But it, I think uh, overall over time, it just tends to eventually make the system degrade a little bit and not flow as beautifully. So you put him with the second unit next to guys like Rogier, who Rogier's getting better at, at like creating plays, but he's mostly just an attack scorer at this point who can kick out. But having another one of those guys with Rogier and uh, Smart allows them to have enough offensive firepower that they probably won't be having these dips in scoring that they've been having when they go from first to second unit. Basketball always takes on the personality of a lot of the players on the floor. Like that's just the nature of the sport. I think it's what makes a lot of us gravitate towards it. But 
what I find so interesting is that it happens to a stronger degree with certain players. I mean, you could draw on elite ends, you know, like LeBron teams, there is a lot of commonality between that and also just in terms of the surrounding talent, the way that works and Steph Curry or whoever else. But it's also true a lot of role players. Like I, I cover Sean Livingston and you see, I cracked up because in their game on Wednesday, he played with the starting lineup and did exactly the same thing he does when he's on the second unit and they have a lot less shot creation out there. And he was playing with Clay Thompson and, and Kevin Durant. And the Mar- the Morris brothers are the same way. And so is Rondo, where <laughs> when they're in, you know, it's very Morrissey. Like, that's just the way that it is. And so what Stevens needs to do, just like what Scott Brooks needs to do, is understand and embrace when that is an advantage and try to mitigate when it is a disadvantage, ideally without making sure that they that they're kind of cognizant of because as you said, ego is an important part of this too. Yeah, and I mean you can chip away at that ego enough to get them to fall in line with the program and still reward them with their touches and the shots and stuff like that. I think when Morris hurts the team, and I'm I'm just talking about Marcus, but I guess this applies to both, is um when they'll get the ball on the wing and then they'll go into like a double crossover pull up in a guy's face from eighteen feet. And that's just like a that's a play that doesn't really doesn't really exist in the Celtics offensive system and really in most teams offensive systems right now, most teams in the NBA, the only time they're really shooting mid range jumpers on purpose is if they up fake out of a closeout and then step into an 18 footer. And in Boston's really emphasizing sidestepping into a three, the way that the Warriors and the Rockets have been so good at. So those are those habits that you try to break on guys. And I don't expect the Morris brothers to be breaking habits at this point of their career. I think they're pretty set in their ways there. But if you try to control the the lineups that you put these guys in and the sets that you're running when they're out there, you can, without directly telling them, you can't take this shot or take that shot, you can kind of eventually massage the situation to have them taking the kind of making the kind of plays that you want. Yeah, that's certainly fair. Something I wanted to ask you, because you obviously are watching him in a different way than I am and more frequently, is so using cleaning the glasses stats, which take out garbage time, which I, for this exercise is, is relevant. Boston is at this moment in time, second in defense and 12th in offense. And so there are two questions that relate to that. One is, do you think that is reflective of what you've seen so far? And second of all, does either one of those surprise you given the context of the season? No, I, I, I'm only sur- the only surprise for me is that they're still all the way up at second for uh, off- or defensive rating because it, it's really fallen off. And it just shows how big of a lead they had earlier in the season that allows them to stay that high. I expect all those numbers to or at least the defensive numbers to kind of pick back up to where they were, not exactly where they were originally, but to get better because your de- your defensive rating just goes really down when you have a really tight schedule. Um, you know, they've been playing exhausted. They've been without players on a nightly basis, as all teams have, certainly. But they've played, a, I think they've played like six more games than everyone else in the league. So, I mean, they're that's something that I think will level out for them. And... Guys like Kyrie, who were playing really good defense at the beginning of the year, and then it kind of slipped a little bit because they've been feeling the exhaustion. They've been feeling the pressure of running the offense. I think that's probably where you're going to see it come around. Although Kyrie, to his credit, has had some great defensive possessions and crunch time. So he's he's able to still really gear it up when he needs to. So, I, I mean, the offense seems like it's just coming into its own. And obviously Tatum is a huge part of that story. And then Kyrie and Horford really figuring each other out is the other part of the story. So 
I don't really, I don't think the offense is going to drop off that much, but I do think the defense is going to pick up a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I mean, you talk about the fatigue part of it, and that is certainly important. The other question with them, and this gets into something with Brad Stevens these last couple of years, is that Boston has what is what you could call very good three point defense. Like so, right now opponents are only shooting thirty five percent from three on them, which is the third weakest mark in the league. And generally speaking, teams do can control frequency, and the Celtics do a good job there. They deserve immense credit for that. But I think that will just that that will offset some of those gains just because I am of the belief that very few teams, if any, have have really much control over that. And so it wears out time. That's why Lakers fans have gotten super mad at me for saying that their defense is going to regress because they're still they're even past the Celtics in terms of that. And then the other thing is one of the elements we've seen in this. I wouldn't say it's a swoon. I would say it's just, you know, like that they've been coming back to earth after that crazy start is a little bit of a toning down of some of the kind of quote-unquote big man stuff that they were doing unsustainably well early in the season. So they were one of the league's best defensive rebounding teams very early on, and I thought that was a little bit strong. You know, they could be top half for sure, maybe even top 10, but like I think they were second or something like that early on, and now I think they're back, they're down to 10th. And then the other part of that is they're doing an okay job. They're middle of the road in terms of how many shots they defend at the rim, but teams are really not shooting well on that. And you think about the teams that are generally forced that kind of stuff, and it's teams that play bigger and teams that have a different kind of bigs. And yeah, Al Horford's having a wonderful season. So like, I think you kind of have all those different things that are running together. But even over the course of an 82-game season, those things don't always equalize. It's just the nature of the sport. Yeah, I mean, there's so like there's a lot of uh, truisms for some of these stats, like three-point percentage uh, or defensive three-point percentage. While, sure, that stat can be you – know, that stat over a long period of time could even out – you gotta if you watch the film and you see how the team contests, that's where you can really determine how you want to hold that the value in that one. And sure. Golden, Golden State and Boston, they contest three so goddamn well. It's like I don't consider those th- those two being at the top there to be a fluke. They are they're really good at communicating on the weak side defensively, although Boston has had a lot of lulls with that in the last month or so, so it definitely has gotten worse. But they do a good job of just no you know, guys staying aware of who's hiding on the weak side being able to contest without fouling and those things I do think play a role now pretty hard to quantify it. Although I'm not sure sport has anything public at this point that quantifies it. I know there's some private stuff that the teams have, but they do a good job at just making sure that they are at least aware of what's happening on the weak side. And then when they overload getting two guys to shift over once the ball starts to swing the other way. So I don't see that being something that really changes, but uh, I, I don't. I don't see the numbers changing, irrespective of what they're doing defensively. But their defense obviously could get worse if guys are just more banked up. You know, if they're missing guys due to injury later, and you have guys that don't play as much that aren't executing that as well. So there's all sorts of variables that come into play there. But the rebounding is definitely, I think, one of the interesting ones because. They're not that good of an offensive rebounding team anymore. I think they're ranked 21st in offensive rebounding percentage, and they were a little bit better at that earlier. Their you know, wings crashing the glass defensively to grab rebounds isn't happening as much as it was earlier in the year. That could be another sign of fatigue. And then as far as the interior defense is concerned, 
Aaron Baines has been pretty phenomenal so far this year at stopping guys at the rim. He's one of the, you know, he's one of the best in the league at going vertical. He's worked, that's worked pretty consistently. So most of the credit goes actually to him really than rather than Horford, who doesn't defend at the rim very often. And then Tatum's getting better at it. We saw, especially in that Houston game, he had some really nice stops on Aaron Gordon or uh, Eric Gordon following him all the way from the perimeter. Uh, and Jalen Brown has gotten better at it. So like all these guys are pretty solid at it. Marcus Smart, defends like he's seven feet tall whenever he's under the rim. So they have, they don't have like that one guy who's like, like a clear stopper that nobody would attack, but they do have a lot of guys that can follow the drive all the way to the rim and make a stop. Yeah, that's fair. I, I I just think it's kind of the the severity of the strengths that is notable at this point. You know, the idea that maybe they're very good at these things, but not elite, I think could be fair. And and at the same point, though, their execution, broadly speaking, has been very, very good. And that's not a surprise. It goes to the starters. It goes to the bench. And I mean, you're right that Baines deserves credit for the defense at the rim. But I think Horford has had just such a wonderful year. And you, I could have never seen it coming just because we didn't know how this roster was going to turn over. I mean, by when they signed Horford, they were still figuring this roster out. I mean, they turned so much over last year. But really, this is in many ways an actualized version of what the optimists thought it could be when they signed him back in 2016. I mean, this is the best case scenario. There's no question about that. And, and Horford has been, you know, borderline elite this year. He was, he was like an MVP candidate early on. I think that faded a little bit more as Kyrie kind of came into his own, but his defense, his execution on both ends is just unparalleled pretty much, at least on the team. And, in most of the league, he just he makes the right play every single time, which is something that they say a lot. And I don't want to use company lines, but it, it's probably the best way to describe it. He reads it on defense so not just like does he read it well, but he communicates really consistently throughout the play. Communicates early. They're really good at icing screens early, so they don't get caught on. You know, they don't really get caught out of position. And they commit through the shot clock, so they don't let teams score on them late in the shot clock that much, which I think was an issue maybe a year or two ago, something that he kind of changed in the culture of their defense, which is, you know, the kind of accountability that a veteran like him brings. So that's been a big difference. And, I mean, con- you know, consistent positive messaging is something that's very real. That's something that Horford does really well. And it's something that he is kind of the conduit for Stevens on the floor in that. You know, and every great team needs, you know, it's a great coach. And then that player that's the conduit for the message on the floor, you know, Kerr and Draymond have that. Pop has that with everybody pretty much. And then Stevens uh, really has that with Horford now. And it's visible. You can see the way that he's talking to guys in between plays, during plays, especially in crunch time. And that's probably as great as Irving is. I still think Horford still might be the most valuable player. Especially because communication is so central defensively. And so you can you can elevate your teammates in a different way on defense than you can on offense. And Kyrie's individual brilliance, you know, should not be discounted, of course, but it's a different type of thing. And with with Horford, you wonder about like kind of how a lot of these mechanisms would work without him. I think it's also true offensively, just with his skill set. You talked about making the right decisions, and I think that is something that that makes him stand out among a lot of these guys. He very rarely over dribbles. He very rarely overpasses, which is an, like, so those are kind of the two extremes that a lot of bigs in particular get on one end or the other, though, actually, now that I think about it, guards do that too. And so that makes it a lot easier for a lot of these other pieces to function. And there certainly are big men, especially the young guys that are coming into the league who have more natural talent, but they're still working it out. You know, like guys like 
Porzingis or Joel Embiid or Carl Anthony Towns, you know, those guys, they need to do a lot of the figuring out that Horford spent his time in Atlanta doing. And that happens, you know, that the, the beauty of basketball is that, that we get to see a lot of this in over years, like it takes a while. And so with Horford, you know, that, that he's at that place. And there is certainly some concern, at least with me, and I, you can tell me if you feel differently, that he might not line up with the full-on timing of some of these younger guys just because as good, as well as Tatum and Brown have played, and trust me, we're going to talk a lot about that, <laughs> that it's just going to take them some time. But he is helping kind of build the kind of the idea of what this team should be, even if he's not at this level two, three years from now when the rest of the guys are there. Yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing is, so like Horford is, is he, I forget, is he 31 or 32 now? I think he's 31 now, right? So he his prime could last until like 34 just because of the way he plays. I mean, he plays like an old man at the Y. So his age, just like kind of like Marcus Gasol, I don't think their age is going to affect them like it would for a lot of other bigs. Like DeAndre Jordan, no, totally different scenario. So I don't think his game is going to fall off until maybe two two years from now or three years from now. So he should be still be as good as he is throughout his contract. And then there's obviously the Anthony Davis variable, which we don't have to get into that because I've talked about that enough for one lifetime. But he obviously isn't going to be as so like athletically potent isn't the right word because. You know, he, he doesn't, he's pretty much grounded the entire time. But then once in a while, he just like flies out there for a dunk or for a block shot and stuff like that. And maybe, maybe because he reserves it so much, it'll still be there four years from now or something like that. But bottom line is, it, I don't, unless he starts getting injured, I don't think the way his skills are utilized will be that affected by age. So it shouldn't, it, the timeline thing shouldn't be that much of a problem. But obviously, that's the short term timeline that like is the remainder of his contract. Going beyond that, when all these guys are hitting their prime, that's when he's going to be hitting his decline. And the question would be, can they keep him on a lower salary or is he still going to be getting a max when his next contract comes around? And that's a challenge with almost every team. I mean, you just don't have it where all of your guys are peaking at the same time unless it happens just that happenstance. I mean, like, so the Warriors have largely done that. The Miami Heat did that because all those guys were basically the same age. Though Wade declined before LeBron did because LeBron is a freak. And you just kind of deal with it. I mean, that's why you try to be judicious about everything else so that and, and be, you know, do what's best for the team. And so, again, I don't need to get into the Anthony Davis thing either. But why general managers are judicious about all of the signings, about everything they do, the good ones, Daryl Morey's another example of this, too is because then if you need to pivot because circumstances change it, you know, I think where we'll see it with Horford is actually kind of a half step defensively at some point. I don't know when that's going to be, but that happens with big sometimes a little bit before the vertical and all that kind of stuff. And then it becomes, if you, especially if you're switching a lot, it becomes a little bit harder. Like he just won't stick with guys enough. We're actually seeing that with Iguodala right now, but that happens, you know, that part of it can happen a little bit before the everything else fades. But, what makes this more interesting for the Celtics is that, yes, point the thesis that I was making about Brown and Tatum and those guys are going to be a whole lot better three, four years from now than they are right now is true. But it could also be argued and should be argued that the Celtics are better right now than many of us expected. And so the arc is different. 
So when they're better now, and obviously they're not, they don't have Gordon Hayward right now. I, I don't know if anything has changed with his timing, but that means you think about these next couple of years a little bit differently. This is not necessarily building to something. It is building to something, but it is also in a, a higher place for the immediate. So you just think about it a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, so let's just quickly acknowledge Hayward. The possibility of him returning this year has gotten more traction probably more from media forces than the actual internal forces. But the Celtics have gone from saying, oh, we're not even going to worry about this year to sure, of course, he could technically come back this year, but we're not planning on it to, yeah, of course it could happen, but, you know, we got to be smart. So they're, they're setting the table for the possibility that Hayward's going to be ready in April or May. And who knows? And I don't think him coming back changes. It, it certainly changes the Eastern Conference equation. I don't think it changes the Western Conference or the finals equation if they were to somehow make it there. So I still think, I mean, don't forget this, that win that they had over Houston was out, was without Chris Paul and Clint Capella. While they were missing Jalen Brown and Shemi Ojale, I think obviously Houston was way more. They were playing with like a hand tied behind their back effectively. So I, I still think Houston and Golden State would be significantly better than Boston, even if Hayward came back this year. But the, the more important question is basically, how high is the trajectory for that arc now that we're seeing how good Tatum is and how good Brown is and, and Rogier can't be discounted. He's been, he's been very good this year as well for his role and probably won't stay when his contract expires. Cause he's going to get a way better offer to start somewhere else. But I thought coming into this after all the moves that they made that they certainly had the potential to be a dynasty in the East and go head to head with golden state as soon as next year. And I think golden state, as long as they had their team together would probably be the favorite, but it would be pretty even now. I mean, at this point, they're so good so soon. And Tate, you know, Tatum has just been so shockingly, not shockingly good, but he's just been, he's elevated so rapidly and is showing that he can mold his game to fit into everything so quickly and so easily that it has to elevate to, it has to elevate your projection for them that. So like they're going to have five max level guys on this team. If Brown and Tatum continue on this trajectory, as soon as maybe next year or the year after that, they could have five all-star caliber players at the same time. And that's the only thing better than four all NBA players is probably five all-star players, maybe a couple all NBA players in there. So like they could be on even footing with Golden State if everything continues to move as ideally as it has so far. It's still it's still a little far fetched to see that happening, but it tells you that they don't have to they don't have to make another move for them to have a championship caliber team. They they can get it done with just the talent that they have on board right now if they're able to keep everyone together. I'll push back on one element of that, and th- there could be a second, but the biggest part of it is there's a difference between all star and MVP candidate and. Sure. I think that's one of the big differentiators. One of those stats, it's actually in a piece that I I wrote about Celtics that hasn't been published yet, is other than the Pistons, and of course that's a big caveat because they've won three titles during this time period. The last NBA team that won a championship without a player who had already won, not a player who would eventually win, a player who had already won an MVP, a regular season MVP, was the 81 Celtics. And that 81 Celtics team had Larry Bird. Larry Bird just hadn't won an MVP yet. And And Cedric Maxwell. And Cedric Maxwell, of course. (laughs) And so 
that does not mean, of course, as I said, there have been three champions since then that did not have one of those players. There are interesting things that could that in those years and why those Pistons teams were special. That is a podcast for another time that I'm probably not the best one to do. But there's a reason for that, and it's because the playoffs are an entirely different animal. And you and while Kyrie has been undeniable on the biggest stages that exist in basketball, because Game 7 of the 2016 Finals, I was there. I, you need to be there to understand this. You could have watched it on TV and gotten the same sense. Like he can do that against the best defenses, but you still, to me, you need that guy. And ideally it's a two way player. I mean, a lot of the best the MVP candidates are not all of them. And to me, this Celtics team is more in line with a group that I, it's hard to define, but it's more like the sum game rather than the parts. And and Boston could be maybe the best iteration of those teams. Like they could be the, the best one of those teams in the last 30 years in a couple of years, like the team without an MVP that like, like those Pistons teams. But generally speaking, there's a challenge there. And that, if we were to talk about Anthony Davis, would be the argument for a keeping the powder dry for whoever the heck that guy is. Cause we don't know who it's going to be, who's going to be available but B, the idea that the Celtics are in a wonderful place and they, yeah, I could easily see them being the kind of the, the 1A or the 1B. But the challenge is what we've seen in the modern NBA is there's always going to be a one. You know, it's the Warriors right now. We don't know what LeBron is talking about with various people about what that could be, the Houston Rockets. And so that is, it's a very different thing. And I, I'm not trying to damper the Celtics because this is unbelievable and, wh- and what they've done this year. And I mean, I'm high on Jalen Brown. I have been for a while. Jason Tatum has had a phenomenal year and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the track record of teams and that kind of level, really, if the goal is like dynasty, that might be a little bit rosy for right now. But the thing that's different about the Celtics is they have the pieces to change what they have into that kind of team as long as things go well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what's so insane about what Ainge is pulling off. And I think uh, Gerald Green, when he came into town yesterday, he said that uh, he was asked about how he felt about Ainge letting him go among many others to make his moves. I think he said like Ainge was like a mad genius or something like that. And he really is because they've built what a team that's already, you know, essentially a championship contender, even if they're obviously not the favorite and a team that has a ton of potential in the future, but also is easily a core that's easily tradable to acquire someone like Davis if he becomes available. So that's something that I feel like I, I can't remember ever really seeing before, at least in recent memory, I can't think of anything like it, but yeah, they can make that pivot if they want to, and they don't really have to, to have a great shot at winning the title for the foreseeable future. As far as the one, a one B people within the Celtics organization have told me that this current Warriors team is the greatest basketball team of all time. So I think they're always going to, they they would even admit that they're probably going to be that one B no matter what. And I would agree with that because you're right. The difference between guys like KD and Steph is pretty dramatic compared to Kyrie and Hayward and what Tatum could eventually become. So like, yeah, there's a pretty huge gap there that having one more of those great players compared to Iguodala or Bell or something like that isn't going to make up for that difference there. So it, it really comes down to, I think like the 2013 Spurs is probably more towards what they could become where it's a bunch of great play, a bunch of really good players 
in a great system with one elite two-way player at the very least and a go-to score. It's not exactly a perfect match personnel-wise, but the concept is kind of the same for what you were describing. But they're counting at at this point, assuming no trades, they're basically counting on if they're going to be an elite team that could really win titles consistently, it's about Tatum you know, doing what he's doing now and continuing to move at this pace and becoming a player of that Kawhi ilk where he is – you know, he's probably better offensively rather than defensively, but being a pretty comprehensive all-around scorer who's really good from deep as we're seeing and can be very impactful on, on the defensive end, especially be a defensive playmaker or someone you can throw on a great player for a five-minute stretch. And of course, they also have Jalen Brown, who I think is much more in that fold. So they have the balance of those two guys along with everything else that they have there. But they have like there's a clear pathway to all of this working out, which they have, which they have that better than any other teams that's out there, at least. Yeah, I would say they do. I'm going to take a quick break from talking to Jared about the Celtics to tell you about Action Heat, something that is very useful for those of you who are in Boston and, of course, the East Coast, but also here on the West Coast. I, I live in California where it doesn't get as cold, but the concept of, of what Action Heat is doing is just so fascinating, and it is heated clothing powered by rechargeable batteries. And so I've gotten to try there. It's kind of a base layer, so it can go underneath stuff and it has a, it has a battery and you can turn it on. You can have different levels there and it warms you up. It's, it's fascinating. It's so cool. It's a different experience. And I also have socks, which are great because I have terrible circulation in my feet. It's not great when I go skiing and things like that. And so what Action Heat is doing is they're taking this idea of rechargeable batteries and heated clothing and not just applying it to the two things that I've tried and have really, really enjoyed, but also jackets and gloves and hats and long johns. And so they're they're pushing this in the direction to make you warm even in the most frigid winter weather. And it's it's engineered to safely and efficiently deliver that heat by heating panels, kind of like a heated car seat, and they can reach temperatures up to 135. And again, it's a low-voltage lithium-ion battery. It can last up to 12 hours on each charge. And so it's a really cool piece of technology. And they've been, to be able to implement it in different forms is is awesome. And they have men's and women's styles, so you can try different things to see what works. And they fit everyone's budget. Pieces start at about $40. And you can try it out with a discount. You go to action-heat.com slash realgm, or you can use the coupon code. So this one you can do either. And you get 15% off at checkout. So that's a great discount. You can try it out. Again, that is action-heat.com slash realgm, or the realgm promo code, either one. Get 15% off your entire order when you check out. So take a look. It's a fascinating product. I've been so happy to try it out for myself. Great for taking dogs on walks. And for those of you who like being outdoors especially, or for those of you who get cold indoors, it's a, it's a great thing to check out. And of course, it also tells them that you came from us. So action heat, action-heat.com slash real GM. Of course, the Brooklyn pick was was a part of the Kyrie trade, so I'm not saying, oh, they threw it away or anything. So that, that obviously they got Kyrie Irving. What Nate calls the Lake Kings pick is 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 the big arrow <laughs> still in their quiver because we, we don't know exactly what it's going to be at this point because there's still a lot of movement with this season, much less next season. And with Tatum, what is fascinating with him, I was thinking about this today when I knew we were going to talk, is... I've followed him for a while. And so it's funny, like Celtics fans are like, oh, you're so on Jason Tatum. It's like, no, not necessarily. I was just, I was higher on a lot of the other guys in the class and what he deserves immense credit for. And this is what I was thinking about when I was, when I was walking today is in summer league, he looked 
worse than he does now. That's an amazing time to make the jump that he's done. And some of that is predicated on shooting, which I think, you know, even the most optimistic people would say, you know, he's not going to shoot 47% from three for the rest of the season or for his career. But his skill development in terms of his handle, his execution in terms of schemes defensively is miles better than it was then. And you can't always predict that. Of course, there are elements of it that GMs and that when they talk to their college coaches, their high school coaches, you know, in this case, Bradley Beal, those sorts of things they can do. But that foundational development is what makes him impressive to me. And you're right that if you that a lot of times when you see that in a guy who's as young as he is, you can draw those bright lines to where that can go, because that can take a guy a long way. Yeah, I mean, so I guess the question is, so the rapid acceleration and development, is that something that you think can be a relative constant or is it just he, he jumped the, like the first hurdle way faster than you expect, but you think it'll kind of peter out? And that's the thing that I constantly asking myself when I'm analyzing him and you know, I'm doing this feature series on Celtics Wire. And I've, I've talked to everyone that's been working with him over the years in detail about all the work he's done. And they've laid out a pretty convincing argument to me for why this is a constant and he'll just continue to rapidly improve. And we're seeing it in the, you know, you have your policy, you have like your policies, your expectations, your projections, and then you have the actual results of the experiment. And we're seeing now that he is just on like a weekly basis, bringing out more things within his game, making improvements very consistently, getting more and more adventurous and more and more aggressive. So there's been no drop off in the rate that he's improved throughout the season. And that's what makes me not second guess myself too much when I talk about him with this level of confidence and anticipation. Because the way that he rate that he remade his game from just over the course of training camp and over the summer, it, it was a very short period of time where he this he like inverted the way that he played. It's almost almost the exact opposite of what he was doing at summer league, but all those skills that he had at summer league that are valuable in short spurts are all still there. And you're starting to bring them back out. Now that the team basically feels like he's proved, he's like hit that checkpoint where they're like, all right, you get the system. You understand how to improvise. You understand how to attack a closeout. You have a good feel for the game. Now we want to see you get more into your comfort zone and break out some of the stuff that you've been really developing in the gym over the last few years. And he's finding that balance now and he's getting a lot better very quickly. And in December, I thought he was like, he was like another step better than what he was in November. And that's just going to continue throughout the season. Right. And you, you do see it. I mean, I think back to that was like a week or two ago. Oh, it's Christmas day when he had the behind the back in transition on auto Porter. It's like, that's even though he was confident in his handle earlier, that sort of thing stood out to me. It's like, okay, this is a guy. And he, and he did that in a big moment. And it wasn't like, Oh, you know, like Mario has only going between his legs on Thursday because oh, no. like, like that it was, I'm, I'm doing this because it gives me an advantage and I know I can pull it off. That is a fundamentally different thing. So what is really encouraging for Tatum is that the league is better suited to taking advantage of what he can do well, even if it's not truly elite than it used to be. Like it used to be that if you were a forward who could handle the ball really well, but you weren't really like a primary ball handler. It's not like you're the the LeBron James or in maybe we'll see where Ben Simmons goes, but Ben Simmons of this, that was mostly superfluous skill. I mean, you can think about kind of what Carmelo Anthony is right now for, for the Thunder 
that's obviously different than what Tatum will be. But the league is better is better situated to handle that, and I think the Celtics specifically are better situated because Kyrie is kind of a uh, he's kind of a combo guard in certain interesting ways, and Stevens's system, the motion element of it, works with this as well. So you have that part that is overwhelmingly positive. The other part that is challenging for me and why I am just a little bit less effusive on this. And this was why, you know, I people are, oh, you did him. I had him fifth in the class. And part of the reason was because I compared him a lot. I saw him play at the Hoop Summit. And the first guy I thought of with Jason Tatum was that he's a more skilled, less athletic Aaron Gordon. Like that was the parallel. I saw it almost instantly. And first of all, the skill level part of that is exceedingly important. But what we haven't seen a lot, and this is not to foreclose the possibility, it's just rare. Again, it's like the idea of the Celtics winning a title with this kind of group that might not have an MVP, is players who are not those kind of like insane athletes, like the level beyond really good. Those kind of players are generally the foundation for these truly transformational guys. I mean, you you could think about Giannis, you could think about LeBron, you could think about Anthony Davis, all those. I mean, you want to go back through history, obviously, like Shaq and Kobe, like those kind of guys. I don't think Tatum is at their caliber as an athlete, but Steph Curry wasn't either. And so uh, James Harden is a very different kind of athlete, but I would say, you know, that's more in kind of the Jason Tatum mold. And so the league is is doing a better job of that, but you have to really reach the nth of your skill-based potential in order to make the transition from really, really good at what you do to elite overall, like best player on a great team type thing. And he can do it, but that's all it's it's a hard bet to make on anybody. Yeah, I mean that's what makes the draft a little bit challenging, right? So I I like Josh Jackson coming into the draft a little bit better than Tatum. Um, because I just thought I just saw the way that Jackson was able to attack the rim in college and I thought that I was just in love with it. And one of the things that Boston has identified the last couple drafts when they took Brown and then they took Tatum is understanding, I hate to sound like Kyrie here saying the word understanding, but understanding how the way that the lanes are clogged in college makes guys look less efficient or less effective than they really could be driving the lane. And both of those guys have talked to me about how when they get to the NBA, they're just like shocked how how much lane that they have to attack. And they're able to get like two steps without a guy all over them. And that gives them the momentum to attack the lane. And I think those are the kind of things that Boston has identified in their, when they're scouting these guys for the draft is who are the guys that we feel like were negatively impacted by this in college. And it makes them look worse on tape and in the stats in college that could really explode when they get to the pros. And uh, Rogier is another one of those guys and it's work, it's working out for them really well. And then going to the skills thing, you know, I've noticed a lot of, a lot of guys coming into the league now whose parents played. They have a much better work ethic for developing skill and working in the offseason, working in the gym, and they all tend to idolize Kobe. And that's one of the big things I'm focusing on with Tatum is, you know, his dad played overseas. His dad came back and was coaching Jason when he was a kid, coaches AU in high school now. And he was just working him to the bone when Jason was a little kid, was uh, having Jason playing against people twice his age. And which is always pushing Jason. And I know that's obviously not completely unique to him, but it is something that I think has clearly worked and has allowed him to thrive at the NBA going up against guys much older and much bigger than him. But it's also, it just, it set the tone for him to have the right work ethic where he showed. So he, his program his entire life has been 
uh, at the gym for like two hours every morning at 6 a.m. doing usually focusing on one or two things in every single session and trying to master them every single time. He's very inspired by Kobe. It's something that him and his trainer have really worked on. And I think for him, he's a perfectionist for making sure that he has things that he can develop into his game that are going to be permanent. And so that's why we're starting to see him starting to break out some of these really complex dribble moves that I'm still amazed he has as a 19-year-old wing. Um, But we're starting to see him break those things out. And those aren't really flukes. Those are moves that he's been working on for a long time. He's just finally feeling comfortable enough to show them off in the game. So I think that's going to continue and he's going to be able to start doing that with like shots off the dribble and traffic and all the other, you know, cause so far he looks super efficient, but the degree of difficulty on a lot of the stuff he's taking is, is pretty low and he's getting a lot of either open shots or just shots that are kind of in rhythm within the system. And then the big threshold he has to climb over the next couple of years is being able to create his own shot against really tough and physical defense. So, you know, that's something that, we, we don't know how good that's going to look, but he certainly has done the preparation for him to thrive in it. So that's why I don't really I don't really limit my projection on him. That's fair. I, I, I just think for me, it's it's always such a big jump that even if you think Jason Tatum is very likely to do it, it's just it's always you have to see it. And I mean, the same thing is true with Giannis. Like, you know, the, the idea yeah. that there's a it's a whole different thing to look like you're the next big thing than to actually be it. And and then to continue it for a whole season or whatever, like, you know, Giannis will presumably, I haven't done it yet, drop in my MVP rankings when that comes out in early January, because what he did in the early part of the season was insane. And and that always happens. And so you have all these things that are running together and something that you brought up there, which I think is, is an important element that the best teams do and a lot of the worst teams don't is understanding the fundamental differences between the college game and the NBA game. And a lot of that is the surrounding talent. Um, One guy I was wrong about in this was Alex Len. Alex Len played on a horrendous Maryland team. And I thought, oh, there's so much that he's not showing. He can do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he, he's gotten, he's had a nice year so far, but it took him a little while. And so, like I said, so you have to see that and more. And with Jalen Brown, I can understand that. I was a Cal team I followed pretty closely living out here. And it's a challenge. I mean, it is. And, and the other element that Ainge deserves credit for is the idea that he made the bets on the right position. Because even if Jason Tatum doesn't end up being... The, like, let's say he reaches his 80% outcome. His 80% outcome as a player who can defend both forward positions is so much more valuable than even a guy who would be better than him by a little bit who played center. And and so make choosing the right, like the scarce positions because teams are falling all over themselves trying to get wings. And so you think about the big chips that Boston has thrown. One obviously was to get Kyrie Irving. One was to get Horford. But after that, well, actually around the same time, Jalen <laughs> Brown, Gordon Hayward, Jason Tatum, like that there, there's a really good element of understanding there. And obviously you need to do it on the right guys. You can't just be like, we need any wing. We're just going to draft this dude, but it's a better place to make a bet. If you're comfortable in the bet you're making. I mean, they were, they've been very ahead of the curve. They went to three guard lineups and three wing lineups before, I think before almost anyone else, except for golden state. And they drafted for it before anyone else did. And at the time, I remember them drafting Terry Rozier, and I was scratching my head because I was thinking, you just got Marcus Smart. Isaiah's, you know, Isaiah Thomas is here. They had another point guard who I can't even remember now. <laughs> and you know, they, they have been, they've been committed to skill versatility 
and it's worked. And they know how the rules are set in the league. They've seen the point of emphasis that have been put in on a yearly basis. They look at the way that players are playing now and the styles that everyone's going towards. And they wanted to be the first to be able to have multiple score, uh, multiple shooters and multiple ball handlers on the floor at the same time so that you couldn't key in on one guy as the uh, choreographer. Although, of course, it ended up being that it was just Isaiah Thomas and defenses could shut them down in the playoffs because of that. But then they realized that they were going to move more towards switching to combat uh, five-out offenses, and they tried to load up on having three- and four-wing uh, defensive schemes, and it's worked really well. So they've and they've, what's been great about it is that it's not like they've just been acquiring the vets that they need to plug in one at a time to make it happen. It's been that they're drafting these guys that are going to be permanently within their system for a long period of time. So they can commit to this for the long term. And I'm sure there's another pivot coming soon that they're going to start moving into. It seems like posting up wings is probably the next one that's that they've been doing for a year or two now. So I bet they're going to – that might be one of the reasons why they really love Tatum, actually, is even if they've gone away from his mid-post game, they're going to toughen him up so he can start backing down smaller guys when he gets them on the switch and become pretty deadly in the post the way that Jalen Brown is starting to work towards and Marcus Smart has always worked towards. So they've been really good of being ahead of the curve in the way that they coach and also drafting to match that curve. I'm a big believer in the idea that posting, not only wings posting up, but also bigs on mismatches with switches. Like that's just the next, the next element of this because as the as the league has been getting smaller and as it's been getting switchier, it's a natural counter. And especially if those guys can pass out of those spots, which they're going to have to be able to do because you can double and all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's there's been some interesting work done in the, in those spaces as well. The crew, now we're at the point where it's like, okay, you were, the NBA will always be in the creating mismatch business. And so now it's going to be, where can we create the mismatches and what can we do about it? And so I'm excited to see where that goes. I agree with you on, on where it might be. And then on the other side of the ball, I've been intrigued with Jalen Brown's defense potential going back even to some of his high school stuff. He, as a man-to-man defender, I still think he has a lot of room to grow, but I wanted to see you've, obviously you see more of him than I do. Kind of where do you see him now and where do you see him going as a defender? Okay. So, I mean, he's, he is great against smaller players because he has great lateral quickness, good balance, which surprises people because they see him turn it over dribbling a lot, but he actually has very, he has really good balance uh, on defense. And he's got great reaction speed and he's incredibly athletic and long. So right now he can guard one through three easily. His issue right at this point is mostly power guys that can push through him or, you know, LeBron, obviously, I think that's been pretty well documented. I know Nate and I have talked about that plenty of times. Uh, most guys aren't very good against LeBron because he's very good, but he, uh, he struggles, I think, with some of the burlier defenders that can really power through him. But he's in his second season, and I think he'll get bigger and bigger, and that won't be much of an issue in the future. I've always compared him to basically Iguodala. I think there's a lot of similarities between them. I think he has the potential to be a little bit better than what Iguodala was in Philly offensively because he's already shown to be a good spot-up shooter, or at least after you know he has a lot of streaks going both good and bad, and it evens out to him being a good spot-up shooter. But he... He works. I, I like the way that he works. I like his offseason regimen that I've seen out of him so far. Uh, he, he's getting better with his commitment to sticking out the play and his tenacity level. He's very quiet, but he definitely plays with a pretty intense physicality that's getting better and better as he, you know, as he gets more experience. So 
he should be an all defensive player in the near future at this rate because he's just so good following the ball, contesting without fouling. He's starting to get there, although it's still a bit of an issue for him. But he's got he's got all the tools in place to be a you know a borderline elite defender. It's going to be a challenge with him. I think where it might just end up being is that he's a v- very good in the team concept and just at the level where he can slow the best guys down a little bit but not shut them down. And that's a, not a bad place to be. You know, th- there are very yeah. few individuals on this planet who can do more than that. And offensively, to me, he looked like, I, again, like Tatum, he looks to me like somebody that the Celtics can take advantage of his strengths and put him in positions outside of that where he can succeed. So. I like him handling the ball in transition. I think he makes generally good decisions and he doesn't lose that much of a step with the ball in his hands, which is one of the one of the things to look at when you when you want to evaluate how good a guy's handle is or how well is his transition is watch the difference in their foot speed when they're running without the ball and when they're running with the ball. It's a it's a good little calibrator for it. And t- the difference with Brown is not as big as you'd expect for a guy with his kind of build and all that, but it was true even at Cal. And that is a valuable player in any system, but I actually think it's more valuable for the Celtics in particular because they don't need some of the other stuff that a lot of teams like to have in wings. So if he ends up being kind of like a high-end support player, good. They can roll with that. They've done a really good job of covering up all the weaknesses. So like right now, if he was on a mediocre team where he was trying to run pick and roll or attack ISOs and stuff like that, it would not be going very well. But he very, very rarely has to do that. And he's gotten better in the half court. It's not, I think initially it was mostly, most of his scoring was coming in transition. That's starting to get better in the half court. I don't think he's quite as capable as Tatum is in the half court at this point, which is really a compliment to Tatum more than anything. Um, But he probably, I I would be surprised if he ever became like a go-to isolation player or pick and roll player, maybe like their number one wing since Tatum and Hayward are already there, but they're not going to need him to be that player. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it is that the way that we analyze these guys is usually in a vacuum to see, do they, can they check off all the boxes? And Boston's done a really good job of putting together at least three wings here that all their strengths, I think kind of perfectly complement each other and cover up their weaknesses. So it probably won't really matter what their weaknesses are. It might matter for award voting and stuff like that. But as far as the team actually being successful and trying to compete for a title, I don't think it's going to make that big of a difference. The last thing on the Celtics that I want to talk about was how you think the Kyrie integration process is going in terms of like there will always be a give and take with a player like him where, you know, especially in crunch time, Stevens is letting Kyrie be Kyrie. And that's the right tack to do when a guy is as, as talented an offensive player as he is. But offensively, defensively, you talked about the idea that his defense has, has waned a little bit as they've played more games. How do you see it right now? I think it's been pretty fine. I mean, that was something I expected to happen just because of the schedule. And my opinion on that will change after January and depending on whether it goes, you know, whether the lack of uh, schedule losses uh, compounding will affect his uh, consistent effort. Although I think, I don't think it's been bad. I saw, I want to say Matt Moore probably had the stat that his uh, defensive rating individually had really plummeted after their winning streak was over. And 
there's, I mean, there's a few variables there. I think that just watching anecdotally, like I see a little bit of it, but not that much. I think he's been still pretty solid in this effort, but it's impossible for your guy, your high usage guy to maintain that defensive intensity. Kawhi is maybe the only guy that I could think of that probably does it. So, and I guess the war uh, KD so far this year has been pretty phenomenal in that. So as far as offense is concerned, I think it's been a pretty gradual. I think a gradual kind of meeting in the middle of the coaching staff in Irving molding their games to fit into the philosophy of the system while still taking advantage of Kyrie, uh, Kyrie's unique skills and I guess appreciating some of the stuff that he does that they wouldn't usually want to do. So like a, like a step in 18 footer is the kind of thing that they've been trying to get out of their system that D'Antoni has been super committed to. Boston has been trying to move away from for a while now. And they've done that for the most part with Isaiah last year, who had a very hard and like shot distribution. And Kyrie was the opposite. Kyrie was just kind of all over the place. And gradually as the season has gone on, he's starting to, for instance, a big one is coming around off the ball on a screen at the top, a DHO from Al Horford at the top of the key, getting that handoff and stepping into the shot. That was Isaiah Thomas's signature shot last year, which made him so deadly. Nobody could, you can't guard it because you can't get, he he just literally grabs the ball. Next step, he's going right into the shot. You just can't, you can't get close enough to defend the shot. And we're starting to see Kyrie taking it. And he's, he's had middling results, but we're seeing him being willing to miss shots to commit to taking the shots that they want him to take. And on the other side, they've allowed him to go ISO, even at end of game sometimes, try to just kind of throw, you know, throw out one of his like double crossover spin move kind of things and pull it from 18 feet. So I think they've been basically cooperating with each other, but the trend is moving more towards Kyrie fitting into the distribution uh, philosophy that they have. And so I think that's going to make him, that's going to make his scoring and his EFG go up even more, although it's already very high at this point. And it should mean that he has a better offensive season in the second half of the year. I don't think it's going to be like what Isaiah was doing last year, where he was averaging like 34 a game in January, February, but they should be better after this London trip when I think Kyrie is playing more efficiently and they're more well-rested. And then I think we can probably have more of a complete assessment of how good of a fit Kyrie is here. The idea of dealing with Kyrie separately from Gordon Hayward could have really gone the other direction just if they let him get really comfortable in kind of a different approach. But Stevens and the staff deserve a lot of credit for the steps that they've taken to make sure that it's going in that direction because Gordon Hayward is going to be a sea change in terms of that just because he uses possessions entirely differently from everybody else that they've been playing in kind of that other guy spot you know so if we if we pencil in Horford and we pencil in Brown and Tatum as being starters on the 2018-19 Celtics Gordon Hayward is just massively different in terms of what he does well what he does poorly from Marcus Morris, from Marcus Smart, from Aaron Baines. And so it's good to give Kyrie that idea of, you know, like you're going to get your time, but you're also going to have to do it this way because that's the only way it's going to work next year. Yeah, it's funny because Hayward was like such an obvious fit coming into the season. And now it's less obvious, I guess. Um, But 
I don't think it's like that's the best problem to possibly have is how do I fit in Gordon Hayward? You know, they'll they'll figure that one out. And I, I think the the important thing is getting those guys to fit. It's I, I don't think it's as much stylistically as much as just from a teammate perspective is how much are you willing to change what you're doing and sacrifice some of the individual accolades that you're receiving to allow your teammate to thrive. And there's no question in my mind that Irving is willing to make whatever change and sacrifice he needs to make it work with Gordon. I've been really impressed with Irving's messaging as a leader and his cooperation that he preaches with the team. And, you know, obviously he gets the looks that he wants for the most part at the end of the game. So I'm sure he's very satisfied in that regard. And we don't, I don't know yet what it looks like for Kyrie Irving to not be getting the touches that he needs and he wants. So obviously that is a little bit different, but he's been really committed to being the kind of leader that he preached that he wanted to be when he left Cleveland. So for everything that people, you know, all the complaints that people have about Kyrie's personality and accusing him of BS with the flatter stuff and all that kind of stuff. I definitely don't think he's full of BS in any regard when it comes to being a leader within the locker room. So I don't think there's really going to be any issue there when it comes to Gordon. It just, it'll take an adjustment period, obviously, but it's like how the Warriors had to adapt when Kevin Durant came to town, but they figured it out eventually, although it's always a process, but I I think it'll be a pretty similar uh, integration process when Hayward comes back eventually. I hope so. I, I hope that's what happens for the for the, the Celtics, obviously, and for the league in general, because that will make them a better team. And this league is better when we have great teams. And that kind of it could tie in. I don't know where you want to go with this. With the other thing, kind of the last thing I want to ask you was you you follow the whole league as well. Was what have been your takeaways from what we've seen so far? It can be big stuff, small stuff, just like what you've seen from teams outside of the Celtics. Houston has been awesome to watch this year when Chris Paul is on the floor. Uh, they've, it, it just goes to show you don't need to worry about stars if their games, you think that they overlap as long as they're committed and they're look and they're trying to find something when they come to a new team that they've gone through a period of it not working somewhere else and they just want to make it work somewhere so bad. And we're seeing that play out perfectly in Houston where Paul and Harden, it certainly seems like they've integrated pretty perfectly. And I'm sure you've watched them a lot more than I have, but obviously going, what, 15 and one when they're playing together, whatever I'm missing by not watching every single game, I'm sure is made up for with as evidence in that record. But that's the thing I think I've really enjoyed is we're in this era where players are much more willing to leave their, leave their teams to try to find something that works. And to see it really happening where, you know, OKC and Houston are very interesting contrast there, although OKC is starting to turn it around, thankfully. And I'm really glad they are because it's been really frustrating having to just completely like detest Carmelo Anthony's career for the last decade. I'd really like to just enjoy it for a little bit while I still can because I've just not enjoyed any of it really. But it's really it's great to see guys going somewhere else and making it work and being able to fit in somewhere else because we've had so many great talents where their careers kind of languish like Carmelo has and DeMarcus Cousins has. It makes you, and it makes you concerned that the idea of leaving your team to find a better system and a better fit might not be the best move. And then you kind of have guys that just get stuck somewhere and kind of toil away the rest of their careers. I like guys changing teams just from the perspective of that, Obviously, we're all excited when guys change teams because it's news and it's interesting and something new, but it allows for more experimentation in the NBA, allows for more 
different collaborations to try to figure out things that work and find new innovations. And to see it working on a few of these teams now, especially to see these teams where we have multiple elite point guards running teams is really fascinating. So hopefully Paul and Harden have, are going to find something here that's really unique to the NBA and creates a new, a new branch of innovation and offensive systems. And so that, I guess that's probably the thing I've been the most excited about. Yeah. It's, it's been so much fun and we haven't seen that much of Paul plus Harden, which is the, the element of that that I'm most intrigued by. I mean, the fact that when they're both healthy, the Rockets can pull out either Chris Paul or James Harden 48 minutes a game is completely bananas. Like that, that idea is even more potent to me in certain ways than the Curry Durant one. Also, they're not playing those guys on the floor, one of them 48 minutes a game because of a whole bunch of other factors that we don't need to get into. But that idea and then the idea of them working together is, is fascinating. And as you said, it's basketball experimentation. Like we just haven't had the opportunity because teams with James Harden have never been bad enough because generally that's how it happens to get a guy like Chris Paul. Like that's just the, we're in a very different world, not only due to the players just showing more agency, but also in terms of the spike in the salary cap allowed some of these unusual circumstances to happen. And I don't know how this is going to play out long term because the flexibility is about to drop again. Like we had two years where we had a lot of flexibility. And so that led to, you know, that's why the Durant to the Warriors could happen and why it did happen. But I think that expectation is there now. And there is a a truism in basketball, specifically in the NBA, that if a player is powerful enough and wants it enough, they can make it happen. And so I think that might be where this goes, that even though there will not be the flexibility for a player to, to choose their destination and to choose their teammates as much as there has been in the past, that they don't have to have that much flexibility. Chris Paul didn't have that much flexibility to make things happen when they really, really want to. Yeah, well, it's amazing that he got pretty much what he wanted. But, you know, look, just, you know, people are so freaked out and offended by the idea of stars leaving smaller markets, but it creates opportunities for new guys to step in. And, you know, people don't like market forces because they're scary and people lose in the short term sometimes. It looks really bad. But at the end of the day, the system is set up to reward you for going through that struggle. And I think Indiana has been one of my favorite stories of the year. To see Oladipo, a guy that we all wrote off mistakenly, and we had plenty of reasons, I'm sure, obviously, to to be more pessimistic on his career. But I mean, the way that Oladipo's turned it around has been amazing. And Indiana is enjoying basketball more than they have in the past. This is way better than another year of them being mediocre with an unhappy Paul George. Uh, this is that trade was a blessing in uh, for Indiana, not just in acquiring personnel, but just reinvigorating the environment around the Pacers and making them optimistic and making them enjoyable to watch. So I I always look at these things as a positive. It just it requires more innovation, it requires more development, it requires you to find more players that are going to be great. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out, obviously, but that gets washed away in history very quickly. And as a whole, all the changing, you know, it, it's mostly players trying to find something that works. And and I do think what's been good is most of these players nowadays are more motivated by finding winning than they are by money or destination the way it was when we were growing up. So I think overall, this has been all this, all this activity, all this turnover has really just resulted in more quality basketball. And at the end of the day, that's really what I care about more than anything. It is. And I think 
players are understanding that what makes them happy is important. And and you brought up the Pacers. The other example of that is the Knicks. Like the Knicks have been so much more fun to watch this year than they were last year. And democratizing offenses, allowing Hornacek to do more of what he wanted, also liberated because Phil Jackson isn't there anymore, so they don't have to do all that triangle crap. But there is a virtue to that. I mean, the, the, a team will probably always have a ceiling. And then the other part of it that I think has been a big a big story this year, we talked about Jason Tatum, and he has been an example of this, even though he's a rookie, he still is, is the idea that you always have to remember that young guys get better. And so there has been this turn in the Victor Oladipo discussion of Russell Westbrook was holding him back. And there were elements of that probably just because Russell Westbrook last year was such a dominant figure and he was the justified MVP. I, if I had had a vote, I would have voted for him. But the other thing that happened was Victor Oladipo got a whole hell of a lot better. And that needs to be acknowledged as well. And that that's what happens with young guys. That's why we are so excited about a player at 21 or a player at 19 that's having a really good season. And so what happened, I think part of it was we had a couple of bad draft classes in a, in sequence and nobody had really broken out. And some of that was circumstance. Some of that was just, you know, players hadn't lived up to, to their to the potential. And now some of those guys, Aaron Gordon is another one of these, though his is mostly shooting related, that we're seeing them step up a little bit. And they might not be the next MVPs in the league. But they are, they can be league pass darlings. They can be what make teams vital and interesting and competitive as we move forward. And at least they're the best player on teams that very much need a best player for the people that watch them. So even if we might not think they're nearly as good as the other stars in the league, in their hometowns, they're massive stars. And that's enough to at least keep the front office and the fan base happy and allow those teams to continue to try to develop young talent and try to try to build as opposed to feeling like they're under the gun to make something big happen. And that's what I enjoy the most is just not having pressure on front offices because of bad drafting or the pressure that the veteran is going to leave or whatever, so that they can patiently build up their young talent because then we get these really great and exciting teams a couple of years down the road. And we're seeing Milwaukee is kind of going through that process now. Obviously, Philly, we're starting to reap the benefits of that. And those are two of the most exciting teams in the league that have a ton of hype and have generated a lot of interest for the league. I'm so excited to see where the rest of this season goes and also really to see where this ties in with with 1819 because that could end up being the really big pivot point in terms of the NBA title conversation. And I, I do think that some people boil it down to that too much. There's too much good stuff around the league to focus on that of like, oh, if we get another Cavs Warriors, that means the whole playoffs are boring or anything like that. First of all, the playoffs should be far more competitive this year than they were last year due to hopefully health and also just better teams. But because this is going in a, in a very different direction, and so we're going to find out what's next. And I appreciate what we have now, but that idea of seeing where this is going is just so invigorating. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why this is becoming the most popular league in the country now. It's the the way that it's marketed, the way that the teams are set up, the visibility of the players, um, and the in the length of the playoffs. It all comes together to make this really invigorating product. Not to mention that there's only this year there was no off season because of the new cycle and Boston was the epicenter of that. But I think everyone is, I think the general fan base has become more interested in the other teams besides the star teams. Now, I think because of social media and the share, you know, highly sharing and stuff like that, guys, you know, guys that aren't stars and like the top five markets have become 
a little bit more popular now on a nationwide level. I think that's just allowed for the playoffs to be more interesting in general. Obviously, last year's playoffs was just like a was just like a pretty freak occurrence of just like a lot of important guys getting hurt and then just a huge disparity at the top, obviously. And the disparity at the top is not nearly as drastic right now as it was last year, depending on health. So that should be a lot better. But there's also just like there's still a bunch of teams with huge question marks hanging over their heads in the second half of the season. So I, I think just about every team except for Houston and Golden State has like a huge question mark as to who they can can become come playoff time. So second half is going to be extremely exciting. It will be. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Always fun to run out of breath with you. <laughs> Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Celtics Wire, which is a part of USA Today, and you can listen to him on various entities and watch him in certain ones for CLNS Media. He does a lot of stuff related to the Celtics. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA. That's J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on, and Boston has just been, as I kind of said in the intro, has been such an interesting team over 2017 with all of the evolution, trading Isaiah and everything else, and I thought it was a good way to end it. I also love talking with Jared, so it worked out worked out pretty naturally, and it's going to be just so much fun to watch the rest of the season. I mean, I think we're getting some of the general contours right now, but there's still a lot more to learn and a lot more to see. And which of these young players that has really delivered early on, who keeps it up, who else steps it up? I mean, we saw LeBron have a much better December than he did November. He's been spectacular. And you can follow it here, of course, at Real Jam Radio. You can also follow my work, the Dunked On Basketball Podcast with Nate Duncan, Warriors Watch, which is my Warriors podcast whenever I feel like it. And then, of course, you can also check out my my written work, The Athletic, Real GM, including the CBA Encyclopedia, have not have had two pieces that have come out since the last Real GM radio podcast, and then Sporting News. You can also buy my book, 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, which is available in bookstores, available online. You can check that out. And yeah, it's been it's been an amazing year for me. I am deeply appreciative of all of you who helped make this happen, and of course, everybody else behind the scenes here at Real GM and Real GM Radio, Chris Reyna. Nick Gelso, who is the grand poobah of CLNS Media, which is, has been our advertising partner for, for Real Jam Radio for a couple of years now. And it's been a blast. And I am thankful to everybody who helps make that possible on every single end of this operation. And if you want to support the show to have more of it, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode. Great for a show like this that comes out sporadically, let's say. It'll be weekly moving forward, but you know, it's not always the same day of the week. It's not like, oh, Wednesdays, you can wake up and Real Jam Radio is going to be right there. And also you can just spread the word that is important, both in in person is always there, but also, you know, through the internet, if you're on Reddit or whatever else that saying, hey, this was a good episode or hey, you should listen to this. It's always great. It's been huge for Dunked On as well and, and for the show. And I really do appreciate it. Then the other thing, of course, you can check out our sponsors, Action Heat for this heated clothing using rechargeable batteries. I have loved using it so far. Action-heat.com slash RealGM or the RealGM promo code gives you 15% off at checkout. You can, lots of different options there. You can check that out too. So if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com. I read everything, respond to what I can, but as many of you know, I'm very busy. So I, I read it because that is what is important to me, that you get your information, that you are not spending your time in vain, but responding can sometimes be challenging. So you, sometimes you have to take my word for it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.